North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, everyone. You've tuned in to Dr. Low Radio. I'm Dr. Lauren Noel. I'm your host, and we have an awesome show scheduled tonight. It's going to get a little political tonight, and I can't wait for that. We have Denise Minger on the show. She is the author of the brand-new book, Death by Food Pyramid. So let's jump into it. Denise Minker, she is a health writer. She's a lecturer known for aggressively challenging today's leading voices of conventional wisdom. She recently published her first book, Death by Food Pyramid, and runs a blog at rawfoodsos.com, and she targets bad science in the world of diet. Her thorough critiques of the USDA guidelines and the China study have made her a major player in the progressive health community and a major thorn in the side of both mainstream nutritionists and other health figures promoting flawed dietary dogma. And I got the chance to uh, meet her a couple times and also uh, hear her lecture at AHS. And um, it was what I loved about it, it was hilarious and also very educational at the same time. So kind of listening more about what kind of uh, – you know, what what parts of the animal we should be eating and, you know, having a little bit of, like, uh, the gross factor but also, like, the fascinated factor of of all things, uh, you know, nutrition. So we'll talk probably a little bit more about that. And uh, so I'm just really excited to have uh, Denise on the show. So, Denise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Dr. Low Radio. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Of course. It's so good to have you. How, so when did you Yay. release your book? It's pretty recent, right? Right. January 1st is the publication date. Wow, how's that been for you since releasing that? It's a wild ride, right? <laughs> you know, I thought it would be like over. <laughs> you know, you you finally finish the book, you publish it, and oh, now I finally get to sleep. But that's not what happens at all. <laughs> <laughs> now it's the promotion part, which is actually I think more stressful than the actual writing part. So it's been oh man, and then it's like, yeah. when's your next book coming out? Then the promotion. Then when's the next? Oh book? yeah, right. <laughs> it's like just let me. There's sleep, no end okay? in sight. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, man. And how long did it take you to write this book? It's three years. Wow. Yeah, my entire mid-20s disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you poor thing. I want to test your adrenal glands and see how they're holding up. Oh, God, I don't even want to know. (laughs) It's really, you know, I've been joking because I got very sick. I caught the flu right after I finished the book. And, you know, I've always prided myself on not getting sick very often, especially since I cleaned up my diet, you know, when I was a teenager. And my body just fell apart after I finished this thing, and I, I just cannot help but notice the irony of writing a health book and then having your own health fall apart as a result of that. It's, just, it's kind of been funny. <laughs> well, and I talk about that on the show, too, is that, you know, me going to naturopathic school, there was absolutely nothing naturopathic about naturopathic school. I mean, I got Great. sick so many times in school. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. So I totally Which hear you. NCNM, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I know that a lot of times what we end up getting passionate about in our career and what we're, our life mission is, and is oftentimes something that we kind of dealt with on our own. You know, I, I know from hearing a little bit about your story, you were a vegetarian for many years, right? Right, 10 years, yeah. Wow. And what had you start to look at things a little bit differently? I mean, tell us a little bit about your kind of your, your own personal story behind this, you know, this new, this passion that you have with this book and this mission. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of in a general sense, I think a lot of reason people get into the health field is to fix themselves. And because they have right. something that they realize Western medicine cannot heal, and so then you start looking at diet and all these other things that it's still kind of a an emerging um, stu- uh, field of study. So for my my own case, I went vegetarian when I was seven years old, and that was um, not for nutritional reasons at first. It was because I almost choked on a piece of steak, and I just <laughs> couldn't bear the, the thought of eating anything with a meat texture after that because I was really scared that <laughs> <laughs> I was going to choke on, on meat after that. So I just stopped eating all, um, all meat. Um, a few years after that, when I was 11, I got diagnosed with a wheat allergy, so then I couldn't eat meat or wheat, and then shortly after that, I, I noticed I was also sensitive to dairy and soy, so I cut those out of my diet, and at that point, there were very few things that I could eat that would um, sustain me as, you know, a young teenager, and so that's kind of when I started looking at alternative diets, and my whole childhood, I was very sick. I was put on antibiotics more times than I can even count. It seems like I was getting ear infections um, almost on, like, bi-weekly basis, and so um, my own health was pretty much a mess growing up, and I was—I just never felt like I was healthy. And so when I was a, a teenager, when I was about 15, um, I was on the Internet one day, and I found out about the raw food diet, the raw vegan diet. And I landed on this web source, with this website on a website called VegShorts.com, which is like this vegan website um, that's, I think, one of the highest traffic vegan websites in existence, or at least it was at the time. And so I found this diet that was being promoted by a guy named Dr. Doug Graham, I didn't realize at the time the doctor was because he was a chiropractor and not because he actually had any medical or nutrition training. Um, but he was recommending this diet of nothing but raw fruit and vegetables, and especially the emphasis on the fruit. He was recommending eating like 3,000 calories a day of um, you know fresh raw fruit with uh, basically no added fat sources. And at the time, I had no background in anthropology and human nutrition and biochemistry or anything like that. And so I was reading this argument that, okay, well, our closest relatives genetically are the chimpanzees, and they eat nothing but raw fruits and vegetables, and they don't get the cancer and the diabetes and the heart disease that we get. And so at the time, I just uh, I believed these Internet people that were telling me things that were above my head, which I think is what happens to a lot of health seekers out there. And so when I was 16 years old, I embarked on um, a very strict raw vegan diet that was about 80% carbohydrate, 10% protein, 10% fat, and first few months were just beautiful. It was definitely a honeymoon phase where um, I think just all the processed vegan vegan foods I'd been eating prior to that, um, just eliminating those from my diet had a lot of uh, improvements. And then, of course, the deficiency set in, and after about a year of sticking to this diet religiously, I ended up with 16 cavities at the dentist after a lifetime of perfect dental health. Um, my hair was falling out. I weighed like 95 pounds. I was breathing all the time, and I just looked like I crawling out of a zombie grave or something. I looked horrible. And so it was at that point where I realized, well, I cannot trust what I've been told on the Internet because my body's falling apart and these raw vegans out there are just telling me that I must be sneaking Big Macs on the weekend if I'm not doing well because the diet is perfect. And so at mm-hmm. that point, my whole yeah, my whole world just kind of crashed. And I, I think a lot of people have that moment of disillusionment where you realize the authorities you're taking information from actually don't know what they're talking about <laughs> or they don't know really what's going on with your body. And so that's really what what got me interested in doing my own research and developing this extreme skepticism to almost any claim that I hear until I've been able to validate it and verify it myself. So it was that whole experience um, that that really got me interested in the effects of food on the human body and especially the problems with vegetarianism and veganism as promoted 
um, as being, you know, the healthiest diets out there because that whole um, belief system for me really fell apart when I saw my body falling apart. So that's what got me interested in things like the Weston A. Price Foundation and paleo eating, um, looking more at the human body in terms of our ancestral history and our evolution to see, you know, what, what are our requirements nutritionally and how have those been sculpted by evolution and just our past experiences, which um, as soon as I started saying that, the whole vegan argument really fell apart. So that's a brief history, and then um, just a, a, a more recently, I guess in the past five or six years, I started going back on vegan forums and trying to help people who are suffering with the same problems that I had experienced, and I kept getting banned. <laughs> you know, people didn't want to hear that, you know, that the problem, yeah, nobody wants to hear. If you're a vegan, you don't, you don't want to hear that people are ex-vegans out there who <laughs> had health problems, who, you know, jumped the ship. It's the most threatening thing to that, that whole ideology is to know that there are ex-vegans out there who went from loving the animals to eating them. It's just it, it's a big red, red flag, and people don't want to hear about that, so they ban you from their, from their message boards if you start saying things like that. And uh, so at that point, I started my own blog just because I was like, well, no one can ban me from my blog, so I'm just going to play everything <laughs> I want to say on my blog and not worry about ruffling feathers on other people's forums. So that's how I started my blog. So so once you started changing your own diet, tell me some of the things that you experienced. Like how did how did that actually change for you, your your health? Yeah, sure. So at first I was incredibly resistant to adding anything new back to my diet. I was still very entrenched in the vegan ideology. And it wasn't really until I went until I had that dental experience as well as going to a doctor and getting blood tests that came back deficient all across the board that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try something because I'm 17 now. I'm still living with my parents, and they have kind of jurisdiction over my life. So, so they were so worried about me. They were basically forcing me to try, you know, eating eggs and whatnot. So the first things I, I introduced were um, cooked vegetables and eggs, especially with, like, the yolk left runny and raw. And um, along with that, I started eating goat products, goat milk products, um, at the time, I was buying this fermented, it was like a 24, 36-hour fermented goat yogurt called Probi-Yogurt, and I was ordering it from this farm in Austin that I think is now either like got shut down or they <laughs> they don't send out things even though they take your money. It's really some kind of mess. Why do you get farms? Don't order from them. <laughs> but for, at the time, they're, they're <laughs> it's actually a bad experience, but um, for a while, they were doing really good, and they're sending me these big cases of this delicious yogurt, and I don't usually do very well with dairy, but at the time... This stuff was basically what turned my dental health around at the time. It was um, at the time I thought it was just the calcium, but then as I started doing more research, I learned it was probably because the yogurt had a very high vitamin D2 content as well as lots of other fat-soluble vitamins, which at the time my diet was completely deficient in. So I started eating that, and then when I was um, about 18 or 19, I was in college, and it was like the end of the semester, um, like party we were having in one of my classes. And somebody bought this big sushi platter with sashimi and different various sushi rolls. And I had not had fish since I was six or seven years old. But for whatever reason, I was eyeing the salmon. I was just looking at it thinking, wow, that's kind of pretty looking. And then all of a sudden, it was in my mouth. It was like, I, I don't even remember the moment of my hand reaching, but it ended up in my mouth, and I was just like scarfing down the salmon. I was, my whole body was singing, and it felt so good to eat. And at that point, I was like, wow, I really need something to share. So it was just this very primal, like, out-of-control moment. And uh, after that, I started eating seafood again, which really helped my health improve even more. So that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> wow, that was the quote of the day. And all of a sudden, it was in my mouth. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was so good. 
So did your hair stop falling out? You stopped feeling cold all the time? Did all that improve? Yeah, for the most part. I still get my body temperature has never been great, and I'm sure that's thyroid-related. But, um, and, you know, I stopped needing ski jackets in, like, 70-degree weather, which happened. When I was right. vegan, I could not, you know, I could not even be outside. It was really, really horrible. And then my hair as well. My hair, um, I kind of gauged it by how many times I needed to wrap my ponytail bands around my hair. <laughs> like, I noticed yeah. when I was a raw vegan, it went from needing two wraps to needing four or five, which tells me I lost about half of my hair. And now, you know, it's back to, the, I think, about the original thickness. Maybe maybe not returned back to total normal, but um, it, it's definitely a lot healthier. Yeah, so it was just, you know, just those dietary shifts. It was returning to animal products, which if you'd asked me when I was a vegan that, you know, if that would ever happen to me that I would need to go back to animal foods, I would just have told you you're crazy. But it's living through that experience that really changes your mind about those kinds of things. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm I'm glad you found another way and that you've, you know, <laughs> experienced some improvement with that. And obviously you're passionate about it because you want to help other people too. So, you know, just really acknowledging you and what you're what you're doing, and it's obviously helping a lot of people, and it's it's creating a ripple effect. It's creating some waves out there, and yeah, I think you kind of like to rock the boat a little bit, and I like that. I think yeah, it's, really, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. So you wrote this book. Tell us a little bit for people who aren't familiar. What's this book all about? Kind of give us like a little bit of a rundown of what they might you know expect to to read from from getting their book. Yeah, sure thing. So it's basically divided into three sections. Um, I should mention the book had a total identity crisis many times over while I was writing it, which I think probably happens with a lot of manuscripts. But what it eventually evolved into is, um, first of all, don't be fooled by the title because it's not exclusively about the food pyramid. It just kind of uses the food pyramid as a launch pad because it's such um, an iconic symbol that we all kind of are familiar with. We've all seen that image of you know eating 6 to 11 grains each day. And from my perspective, especially after writing this book, I've really realized that the food pyramid is our best icon for this convergence of bad politics and misinterpreted science and shady interests that were um, not nutritionally motivated, not not intended necessarily to rescue human health. But they all kind of converged to this symbol, which um, I wanted to use kind of as a centerpiece for my book. So it's actually in the book. First section is all about the political history. You know, you'll, you're going to hear about how the food pyramid came into existence, um, its whole evolution, the the its recommendations, the fact that very little of it was actually um, based on science regarding to human health. It was very much motivated by the country's economic interests, um, different financial motivations. Just a lot of really horrifying things that I think if anyone really trusts the government, that they probably won't after they read this book. Um, so there's a whole bunch on that, you know, the McGovern stuff. Um, I try to be more even-handed with this book than I've seen in a lot of paleo, low-carb books that are out there right now. Um, I'm not going to name names, but I think most people out there have read, you know, a certain amount of paleo or primal low-carb books that give a very specific history of, um, you know, like Ansel Keys being a really horrible person and John Yudkin, who promoted this theory about sugar-causing heart disease, being this, um, unsung hero, a forgotten saint in history, um, stuff like that. And when I, when I was researching this book, I realized that the actual history of all that is much more nuanced than I've ever seen it presented. And so I tried to be very objective in how I um, presented these political and uh, historical figures in the book. So I hope that anyone who thinks they're already familiar with this kind of history, I hope they'll read this book anyway, and it'll give you a different perspective than you've probably read already. So um, first third of the book is about that kind of thing. The second third is um, all about the science. There's uh, a section on 
how to um, evaluate experts in terms of figuring out who's actually credible out there. Because I think that's a big problem these days is finding out who you can trust. Because most people do not have the time to become expert and proficient in biochemistry and all these big sciences. Um, so you end up kind of relying on certain experts who you choose um, as credible to uh, take their opinions and bring them into your own life. But there's that challenge of figuring out who's actually giving you the correct information because we have so many people who are highly qualified, who have PhDs, and many of them have diametrically opposing views on nutrition. So it gets really confusing. So I give some advice on how to navigate just the, the whole uh, where to get your information from issue. Um, I have a toolbox for people to help understand um, how to understand nutritional studies. Uh, I think another issue out that we're facing right now is that people don't feel literate in reading scientific literature. They open a study on PubMed and it's full of big words, all these Latin prefixes, and they just get scared away because it's like, well, this is jargon. I don't understand this, so I'm just going to close my little browser window and go back on Facebook. So um, I don't want people to, to feel that way. I want to empower the reader to um, basically realize they're smarter than they think they are and they're more equipped to understand these things than perhaps they've been led to believe for most of their life. So there's a lot of information on just how to decipher the jargon and the science and all that. And uh, along with that, um, that whole section goes through the scientific history of how we arrived at certain beliefs about our food diets um, or about our, our various fats and carbohydrates and uh, just how that whole scientific field evolved. Um, and so, again, that's going to cast some doubt maybe on the recommendations we've been hearing from USDA and other uh, mainstream organizations. They focus like on vegetable oils and what are actual healthy fats and how does um, a higher fat intake impact the human body, all sorts of stuff like that. And then the third section is my favorite, and it's called New Geometry, and it's basically just a synthesis of what we know right now and where all of our so-called successful diets, things like um, the paleo diet, the low-fat uh, plant-based diet that seems to have a lot of success treating various conditions like heart disease and even diabetes, where do all these conflicting, contradictory, dissimilar diets overlap? And so I drive home the point that there's actually a lot in common that these all, all these diets um, share. And if we focus on those things, we can get a much more um, understandable view of nutrition. Because right now we have all these warring diet communities. We have the paleo people always at war with the vegans, the vegans who hate the low-carbers. And uh, no one seems to, that interested in reconciling um, these diverse diets, but if we look at how everybody is, um, where everybody is doing something similar, I believe that's kind of the key key issue to look at rather than where things are different. So that, that whole section is just a synthesis of um, where we are right now, what we know, and uh, perhaps why different people respond differently to the same diet, why a different one diet will work well for one person, another person will crash and burn on it, so on and so forth. So it's just a, an attempt to illuminate a little bit more about um, the state of confusion we're in right now regarding nutrition and uh, uh, just clarify that for the general reader. Well, I can see why it took you three years. It's definitely a lot that you <laughs> yeah. dove into. Oh, yeah, a lot ended up on the cutting rib floor, too. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's definitely a journey to write. <laughs> well, whenever you're in San Diego, come by, and I'll, I'll give you an IV treatment and try to put, bring you back oh, to, to health. But <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow, Yeah. <laughs> One thing I love about your cover, I'm looking here at this at this cover. It's so it's it's I feel like it says so many things with just this yeah. this picture. So, one of the things we're seeing is a man climbing up a ladder and um out of his hand or out of look like a little maybe bucket he's holding there's money flying out of it. So, give us a little bit of um what, you know, 
what what was the inspiration behind this picture? So, well, I I did not come up with this picture, but I agree that it definitely <laughs> captures um <laughs> definitely captures what the book is about. Like, um, so a lot of the financial and uh, political influences. I talk about this early on in my book. Um, there's a great story by uh, or there's a book out there called What to Eat by a woman named Louise Blight, which I came across while I was I was researching this book. And it turns out this is a woman who was brought on board to the USDA. Um, specifically to create a new food guide in the 1970s. And this was way before we actually had our food guide pyramid released. But she was there to revise what had been standing as the food guide prior to that, which was something called the Basic Four, which is just uh, four, four food groups, fruits, vegetables, grains, dairy, and meat. And um, that food guide had been in place since basically World War II, and she was hired to revise it because... It was not serving the current nutritional needs of America. People were facing chronic disease um, at, at greater rates than they'd ever seen before. And so the USDA brought this woman on board to do their research and come up with a better eating plan for America. And so what happened on her end was she she was a woman of incredible integrity, and she really sincerely wanted to help the American public. And uh, so she convened all these groups of experts. She poured through all of the nutrition literature that was available on t- at the time um, just looking, trying to understand uh, the, you know, the best route to steer the American diet. And she ended up putting together, after about a year of intensive research, um, just this guide, you know, it wasn't exactly pyramid-shaped at the time, but it, it could be kind of outlined that way, where the base of her diet was going to be fresh fruits and vegetables, which she felt people should eat in great quantity. Um, cold-pressed fat, she thought that that was actually a very important thing to add, add to your diet. And she wasn't fat-phobic at all. She thought, um, you know, marine oils, flaxseed oil, olive oil, cold-pressed fats in general would be a great addition to your diet and should be used quite liberally. And uh, she, the very interesting part was, based on her research, she thought that grains should be limited to two to three servings a day per person maximum and always in whole form, no, no, you know, refined grains whatsoever. She thought those were basically just junk food. And uh, that two to three servings, three would be for people who are extremely active, you know, very large men would be for women, you know, maybe one serving for less active women. And um, so this was the design that she came up with, and she felt like it was incredibly scientifically supported. She felt uh, very strong about um, that those recommendations based on everything she had seen and everything she had heard from the experts. So what she did was she submitted it to the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, um, you know, sitting back there in the USDA, kind of removed from her position, and instead of getting the guide she submitted approved, it came back to her completely mangled. And instead of the guide she had designed, grain servings had gone from two to three servings a day to six to 11. They did this behind the closed doors of the USDA, um, just completely out of her, you know, she had no no, uh, way of uh, intervening here or anything. And uh, so that that was one of the changes. They slashed fruit vegetable consumption away from seven to nine servings a day, which is what Louise Light had recommended, down to something like two to three servings total for both fruits and vegetables. And it was only because the National Cancer Institute later badgered the USDA to make changes to that recommendation that it, it you know expanded to something like five servings a day. And um, so the whole pyramid that she created, the whole whole food guide, just was warped. Um, incredibly to just a staggering amount of changes that she felt were completely backwards in terms of, uh, you know, supporting human health. And so when she asked her supervisor why they made those changes, all she was told was that uh, it was something about the food stamp program, like they needed to 
keep the lid on the cost of the food stamp program, so they had to do some rearranging on the, on the food diet she submitted. But they thought that uh, fruits and vegetables were nutritionally equivalent to grains, and that's why they had kind of exchanged the grains. Or they, they had, uh, you know, dropped the fruit and vegetable consumption serving recommendations in favor of increasing the grain recommendation. And, of course, Louise Light knew that was baloney, and she felt the whole time like there was something going on that she was not told about. And But she never was able to actually get that answer that she wanted about why they changed everything on her guide. Um, but after doing my own research into that whole story, the best I can tell is that there was a lot of pressure at the time from grain farmers to uh, basically prevent them from going bankrupt and uh, increase their sales, increase their profits, because this was right on the tail of a whole bunch of stuff regarding wheat sales to the Soviet Union, um, a lot of crop failures in America, a lot of uh, price issues, financial issues that farmers were facing, to the point where farmers were actually protesting outside of the Secretary of Agriculture's office, um, you know, begging for the government to do something to help them out. So just putting two and two together, I think that there was great pressure at the time to increase America's grain consumption for financial and economic reasons, and I believe that's a big reason why they changed um, changed that, you know, scientifically sound food promotion, food, food guide that Louise Light had come up with to the mangled mess that it ended up being. And then, of course, everything she designed was kind of the kernel that created the food guide pyramid, as we all remember it, um, later in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then once that was actually released, the, the, the Food Guide Pyramid, when, when, what year did the Food Guide Pyramid actually come out? So it officially came out in 1992, even though it was supposed to come out in 1991. Okay, so, so once 1992 rolled around, how, how did the health of the U.S. change? I mean, I'm sure you were pretty amazed once you, you were doing your own research for this book. Yeah, so a big problem um, was how the food guy, or yeah, how the new food pyramid ended up influencing food producers, food manufacturers, snack producers, as well as things like um, the school lunch program, even food they serve in hospitals and prisons. Because as soon as this pyramid came out, it ushered in the era that many of us remember that was all about low fat. And it wasn't just about low fat, it was about taking foods that naturally had a higher fat content stripping the fat out of them and then adding all sorts of crap into them to make them still taste reasonable. And, of course, most of that junk they ended up adding back to it with, like, high fructose corn syrup, various forms of sugars, um, just junk, empty calorie carbohydrates that uh, were not doing any favors for our health. And so yeah. that's that's when the, the um, grocery stores ended up just ripping off all of the um, – you know, the full-fat cheeses, the full-fat cream cheese, full-fat everything ended up getting replaced with these fat-reduced versions, and people flocked to them and started filling the grocery carts with these new fat-reduced foods because the government had told them, this is what's healthy for you. And, you know, I'm not anti-low-fat in any sense. I think there's a lot of low-fat, naturally low-fat foods that are incredibly health-promoting, but when you take a food that's naturally high in fat and you tweak it so that it's no longer high in fat, I never have seen that be successful in terms of making the product healthier. So the whole mentality at the time was just, um, especially because the the new food pyramid did not distinguish between whole and refined carbohydrate sources. It just kind of said, okay, your your diet can be a starch free for all. Just get it from pretzels and cookies and wherever you want to get it from because here we can eat tons of grains and starches and all lose weight because that's what this food pyramid is telling us. Um, so just instilling that whole mentality onto the country was very harmful, and it really took probably about a decade, maybe more than that, before 
um, people started protesting against that whole concept and the low-carb or higher-fat fat diets ended up uh, starting, to, starting to trickle back into the mainstream. But for a long time, it was just this whole concept that fat is bad for you because it, it was the, the pyramid did not distinguish between different fat types. It just lumped all oils into that used sparingly tip and recommended choosing lean meats, lean dairy, and just uh, stamped this huge stigma on fat consumption of any form, which really did the, the country a great disservice. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on the fat train, let's dive into that a little bit more. Um, it's it's amazing how often I'm prescribing for patients to eat more fat and look at me like I'm crazy, mm-hmm. and then they get really excited because they're like, oh, my God, I can do that, you know, and then they <laughs> feel a lot better, and lots of benefits right. come from that. So, um I know one of the things you're you're really into is different variations in optimal diets because, you know, I think we're on the same page that there's not one exact diet for everyone. You know, I think we can take right. some real common themes from all the diets, but really that every everyone's an individual. Um, so, what are some of the some of the variations that you found? Um, you know, I think something that you that we had kind of exchanged about was APOE. So, tell us a little about APOB right. or APOE, and then we can maybe jump into other other topics after that. Sure. So APOE, now there's a gene, we all carry two copies of this APOE gene, and what it does is it um, it codes a lipoprotein that's responsible for cholesterol transport, lipid metabolism, a lot of things regarding both um, fat that you consume as well as fat that's in your blood and in your body. And so when I was researching this book, I, one thing I've always wondered is why people respond so differently to high-fat diets. Like, you'll see if you go on a message board that's, you know, like on Primal Blueprint or uh, Garcia Apple or you go on a low-carb forum, you'll see a certain number of people freaking out because their blood lipids have shot through the roof when they've gone on a low-carb paleo diet or anything like that. And I've, I've uh, always wondered kind of why does that happen to some people while other people shock their doctors by coming in with these great lipid profiles after they've switched to a high-fat diet. So this APOE4 or APOE thing seems to be a big clue to that. So, again, everyone inherits two copies, one from your mom, one from your dad, and uh, there's three um, three versions of this gene that are the most common. That is APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. And so if you have a combination of um, APOE4 with one of the other APOE gene types, um, or if you're a double carry of APOE4, if you inherit both that, if you inherited uh, APOE4 from both your mother and your father, you're going to be APOE44. And what's really fascinating about people who carry APOE4, either one copy or two copies, is that you seem these people seem to respond to a high saturated fat diet with that skyrocketing um, LDL levels, with uh, basically worsening blood lipids, and so part of the reason for that is that people um, who carry APOE4, this is considered the ancestral allele because it goes back way before the human-chimpanzee split. It's like um, the same same uh, variant of the gene that other primates carry, you know, species that do not have a high meat intake who suffer from uh, intensive periods of the means, who, um, whose bodies are basically... Um, fighting to hold on to, you know, those nutrient-dense foods when they do arrive in the environment because they're not there very often. And so if you look at it from that perspective, people who have this gene today, their bodies are kind of uh, hoarders. They're basically, um, their metabolism is uh, geared towards um, salvaging as much cholesterol and fat from food as possible. 
And uh, mm-hmm. another issue that the people with this gene type um, face is that their brain often cannot get enough cholesterol, which is why part of why the body tends to hike up the LDL and the, the circulating blood lipids when people are carriers of this gene because it's an attempt to get more cholesterol to the brain. And as a result, there's two problems that people who are carriers of this um, often run into, and one is they have a much higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. The other is they have a much higher risk of um, heart disease, largely because they have higher LDL levels. Um, there may be slower clearance of those LDL particles from the bloodstream, which gives them more opportunity to oxidize, which in turn you know, can keep off the, uh, whole, the whole process of plaque buildup and eventually heart attacks if they're eating an inflammatory diet. So people who have... Um, at least one copy of ACOE4, they may need to reduce their saturated fat intake or even their overall fat intake or at least be very cautious of how much they're eating because basically their bodies are best adapted to environments where that kind of food, where these really fatty foods, really nutrient-dense foods, are not around very often. And so when they eat them, the body's like, oh, yeah, let's hold on to this as much as we can. But when you're eating that, that kind of a very rich, fatty diet on a daily basis, the body is just in perpetual hoarding mode, even when it, it's not in its own best interest. So for people who carry this gene, um, or anyone who uh, you know has gone paleo or low-carb and sees their blood lipids really going in a bad direction, I recommend getting tested for this gene and seeing if you're a carrier, because it may be a big reason to modify your diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is a, a part of a whole heart panel that I, I do with patients and, you know, has lots of other markers on it. So it's really good information. I think especially, like you said, for people who are paleo that are just going super high-fat diet, well, maybe it's not the very best thing for you. So that's right. great. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah good. I'm glad you do that, too. I, mean, I think more people need to do that because I think a lot of the, the sentiment in the paleo community is, oh, my God, we've been screwed over by the government for so long telling us about this low-fat stuff, telling us right. to eat bacon. So now we're going to eat all of the bacon, and we're going to eat all of the fat, and we're going to put fat on everything because we can. Um, but, you know, just, yeah. just that reactionary mentality might not be the best for everybody. It might actually, uh, you know, there may be a case to be made for moderation in some cases, which I know oh, no one for sure. Care, but it's probably true. Yeah. Have you yeah. had that tested for yourself? No, I haven't. You know, I ordered the 23andMe um, thingy, and I have yet to do it. I have yet to send it in, and I know that they're having some issues with the FDA now, but keep meaning yeah, to we do can, that. We can I definitely don't want to test know. it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, Ignorance yeah. is bliss. Well, you know, I <laughs> tested it on myself, and I have a 3-4. So, do you? Wow. Yeah, I do have a 3-4. And, and it's, it's interesting because I actually myself, I feel way better when I do more of like a plant-based paleo. I definitely don't feel yeah. better being vegetarian because I have been in the past, but doing yeah. more of like more like higher, you know, plant um, foods with, you know, some like some of the organ meats and then, you know, some of the other, you know, higher quality proteins. I, I feel really good with right. that. So, so, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same boat I'm into. Yeah, it's like I do plant-based kind of supplemented with really nutrient-dense animal foods, and that seems to be yeah. where my body's happiest. Yeah. Totally. That's how I feel best, like vegan plus organ meats. Right. <laughs> <Hey>, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, by the way, I loved the talk you gave at AHS. I thought it was so funny and also just so educational. And it was, um, yeah, it was really cool just to hear about the different organs and, and doing, like, the nutritional profiles in each one. Um, for yeah. people who weren't there, give us, like, a couple little highlights. Like, what are what are some of the main organs that are the most nutrient-dense? Because obviously, you know, we used to eat from nose to tail back in the day. So right. there's a lot of yeah. options. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, this was one thing I brought up because it's another issue I think the paleo community will benefit from taking note of, which is um, 
we, we kind of just gravitate to the muscle meats in foods, like the skeletal muscle, you know, like the beef and the chicken breast and the chicken wing and just like those parts, the skeletal tissues of animals. Um, but if you look at the entire animal, the muscle meats are actually the least nutritious. And so my favorite, one of my favorite foods is actually liver. Um, and I know that it's not very appetizing to a lot of people, but you can actually cook it in ways that make it very delicious. And uh, liver is just incredibly high in minerals and vitamins, and um, it's a great thing for like women like myself who tend to be prone to anemia. Um, if you don't get a lot of iron elsewhere in your diet, liver is a fantastic source of that. And so I recommend that you know if you're eating um, animal products in any quantity, if you're eating meat in any quantity, you know, balance it out with some liver. Um, heart is also a very nutritious organ meat. It has a lot of coenzyme Q10, which is really great for you. Um, and then my other favorite parts of the animal are actually like the bones and the cartilage and the connective tissue. And those foods are really high in an amino acid called glycine. And glycine is really important because most of us don't get it from almost any anything we're eating because it's it's really concentrated in like the bones and the connective tissue. And so what people used to do is you take you know the, the animal carcass after you finished eating all the goodies out of them and you you know throw that in some kind of boiling or cooking device in water and you uh, you basically cook it into a broth and uh, then drink the broth which has uh, a high glycine content as well as the minerals that were in the bone. Um, so that was a that's a traditional practice that I don't think many of us do anymore. So I recommend that if you're eating animal products, um, you know, seek out bones, especially ones that have all that like gooey, good connective tissue attached to it, and uh, just consume that in some form. Um, you know, even tendons are really good if you you eat pho, uh, if you're like in Vietnamese food. That's also very high in glycine. And uh, again, one of the reasons that glycine is so important is it helps balance out the amino acid methionine which most of us, if we're eating muscle meat, we tend to get an overabundance of methionine relative to glycine. And what we're learning now from a lot of different studies is that there should be a, a nicer ratio between the glycine and the methionine than most of us are experiencing right now. Um, and there's actually been studies using mice and rats showing that when their diets are supplemented with glycine, um, they have the same life extension benefits that, that we see from restricting methionine content um, or restricting protein content or going, you know, on those low-calorie diets that we've been told tend to extend your life. A lot of times all it takes is supplementing with glycine to have those exact same effects. So that's a huge missing piece. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I, I really recommend people eat, um, you know, you can even get like gelatin and use that and that also is very high in glycine. Um, but, yeah, that's a big part of the whole nose-to-tail thing is using the bones as well as the parts we usually consider as edible. So um, that's, you know, that was, that was a big part of my talk. Um, cooking methods were also uh, something I touched upon because, you know, it's tasty as, like, grilled and barbecued meat is. That process actually creates um, various uh, potentially carcinogenic compounds that, it's, you know, it's a little iffy how well the toxicology studies will translate to like human experience in the real world because a lot of times we feel these things are carcinogenic because we've tested them on rats or because, um, you know, we've tested them in labs at very high levels. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think people should be cautious of how hot they're cooking their meat and just focus on gentler methods like stewing or just very gentle, you know, cooking methods, um, you know, steak tartare, just steamy if you want to eat your fish broth. Um, you know, try to, to try, try to be kind to your meat when you're cooking it, and not just uh, heat it to oblivion. And um, that should really help improve its healthfulness as well. Mm, 
And you had some pictures. I think you were showing, like, brains and stuff like that. And just yeah, really lots of fun pictures. Out. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> beautiful, the beautiful brain. Something about eating yeah. brain kind of weirds me out. Maybe just because I'm like, I don't yeah. know. It's like I'm thinking with my brain about how the brain tastes. It's just weird. It's just yeah, it's like, just a little weird, like of a like a meta <laughs> reality. I don't know. Yeah, me. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool though. Um, all in the yeah. name of health. So and then right, so. Right. What would you think, like, if, if someone were to eat exactly according to the Food Guide Pyramid, like, to the T, like, the way that it is now, what do you, what mm-hmm. would you predict would happen to them? You know, it's kind of hard to say um, because I think so few, so few people actually follow the pyramid as it was outlined. I think it was more the whole, like, fat is bad, carbohydrates are fabulous mentality that ended up making people think that junk carbohydrates are good for them while all fats were bad. If someone starts eating exactly according to the pyramid, I definitely think that they would be deficient in fat-soluble vitamins because the entire anti-cholesterol, anti-fat message within that pyramid gets rid of all those, you know, the organ meats, which are usually very high in cholesterol. Mm-hmm. It gets rid of egg yolks. It gets rid of, um, like, high-quality cheeses that might be very high in vitamin K2. So I think what we would see is um, basically symptoms of being too low in fat-soluble vitamins, which could manifest as fertility problems for some people. It could be um, dental problems. I think we're definitely seeing that. (laughs) I mean, I know very few people who have a cavity-free mouth these days, and uh, I think that that would all be issues um, for people who respond poorly to a high carbohydrate, especially high grain intake. Um, There could be a flare-up of, like, autoimmune issues, um, weight gain, blood sugar problems, people who feel like their meals are just not satisfying because they're so um, so heavy in carbohydrates, and so low in protein and fat. Um, basically, I don't think it would be doing many people a lot of favors. I think, you know, some people could probably feel fine on it just because there's such a wide range of response among different people. But for the most part, um, if you follow the pyramid to a T, I think that your diet would be really robbed of some important foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. I, I guess it kind of depends on where they came from, right? If they're eating just right, standard yeah. American diet and they eat food guide, it might be a big improvement. Right, it could but. be a step in the right direction. If, yeah, it all depends because it's really hard to do worse than, like, the standard American diet. So right. So <laughs> any direction you move away from that, I think you're going to find that your health improves at least a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> um you wrote a fascinating blog post about um, the study that came out that linked fish oil to prostate cancer. Um mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what you uncovered regarding the legitimacy of the study? Um, that one was a while ago. I think I'd actually have to refresh my memory on that one. But my my whole uh, issue with the I think this was was it an observational study that they just kind of followed people for a few years? Do you remember? You know what? It's been a while for me too. And like I said, yeah. I have or <laughs> ApoE, so I think I'm more prone to Alzheimer's. We <laughs> <laughs> should have an excuse. I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, just a general problem with studies of that type is that they're not actually based on experiments where variables are controlled and manipulated by scientists to determine cause and effect. They're just taken as um, basically observations of people who are, for a long period of time, eating a certain way. You know, you give questionnaires, which most people just fudge because they can't remember how many carrots or whatever they've eaten in the past year, which is, you know, one of the questions. It's like you have to, you try to remember the same, and people who are not, um, like, obsessively health conscious, 
they're probably not going to remember their exact eating patterns. It's more of a, you know, not really thinking about what they're eating, whereas someone who's, you know, meticulous about their diet might be better at recalling that sort of thing. But anyway, I, I have very little uh-huh. faith in food frequency questionnaires, and the problem with this kind of study is that it's just observational. It's a matter of observing what people are eating, what their mortality outcomes are, what their disease outcomes are, and uh, trying to link then their diets to those outcomes without really necessarily accounting for all the other variables that are going on at the same time. Um, the whole thing with fish oil, uh, I guess my I do have some um, hesitations and some hang-ups about fish oil itself just because it is a very, um, very prone to oxidation, as is any polyunsaturated fat, but omega-3s in particular are very um, unstable. And so when you take them out of the fish and you store them for any period of time, you have to be very cautious that that oil is fresh and that it's... Um, you know, not oxidizing in the capsule, that it hasn't been, you know, driv- driven around in some truck that overheated while it was getting transported towards to Whole Foods or wherever you bought it from. So there may be some issues with fish oil consumption itself, but I think the issue with that study, too, was just creating a fear of maybe seafood as well, um, which, as far as I know, there's there's been very little evidence apart from perhaps, um, you know, heavy metal toxicity in some species. To say that seafood is bad for you or that it promotes cancer, I think what we usually see is quite the opposite, that it's very uh, incredibly good for you and uh, tends to be anti-cancer in many cases. So I just didn't feel that study was anything worth worrying about um, unless you have, like, a high consumer of fish oil. I mean, it it really, I would not change my diet based on that study in any way. Well, that's what's so great about the way that you read studies, the way that, you know, we're trained to read studies really with, with, you know, any, any doctor who has medical training and, you know, you've done obviously a lot of, a lot of education, how to read studies. And so for someone who's listening, who maybe isn't familiar with how to actually do their own reading of studies, what are some, like, just some, some tips you can give how to look at the legitimacy of studies and, you know, things to look for? Sure. So the first thing I would look for is, um, okay, most people, the first place they hear about a study is some media outlet, like maybe their friend posted about it on Facebook and linked to Yahoo News or Google News or the New York Times or wherever. And um, the issue with trying to take your, like your, your study interpretation from mainstream media is that you have to remember that these sources are all about trying to grab your readership. So you can rest assured that the headline is going to be targeted especially or like in particularly to make you feel emotional or to scare you or to grab your interest and make it seem like this is a huge finding just because that's what the media is about. It's about um, grabbing readers and uh, increasing viewership, especially today where so many people are just trying to uh, make their articles go viral on the Internet. So um, first of all, I would, I would always take whatever you're reading um, from one of those mainstream sources with a grain of salt. And not even just mainstream sources, but like even alternative health websites, same thing is going to happen. There's going to be a certain spin on it to um, make you feel emotional, um, to sensationalize the findings, and uh, basically add more power to the study than they have actually been within it. So um, my first recommendation is do not listen to headlines. Um, you know, never stop there. Never make a, a, Never base your opinion of an article or a study um, on the headline alone or even on the author's summary of it. Um, so what I would recommend people doing would do is uh, actually go back and find the study that's being referenced in, in those articles, and that means going to PubMed, going to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the New England Journal of Medicine, wherever that article was 
published, and that study was published, go back and find the original source. And then this is where people get scared because now you're in, like, scary science big world land, and this is where people get lost and terrified and they just click back on a back browser because they don't want to um, endure the pain of reading these huge works that they don't understand, which is something I totally get and I totally sympathize with. Um, but once you're like in the study itself, there's actually some ways to break it down to make it easier to understand. And the first thing I, I recommend doing is not just reading the abstract of a study and not just reading the author's conclusions. But actually reading um, like their methodology, reading how the study was conducted, and reading the data that they acquired from the study. And that just means looking at the results section of the study as it's published on PubMed or wherever you're looking it up. And um, once you, you know, you're familiar with some of the terms that people are talking about, which I, I kind of decipher in my book, I have like a little dictionary thing for people to look up the big words. Um, so just look at what the, the findings of the study were before anyone interpreted them. And uh, this is the part that takes a little bit of practice, but once you're a little bit versed in you know, that scientific language and how studies are conducted, you can uh, basically see whether or not the researchers' conclusions or that mainstream media outlet's conclusions match up to what the study found. And more often than not, you'll hear some kind of headline that says, high-fat diet causes diabetes. And then you go and you look up the study, and it's a study on rats or it's on mice. It's on some species that's not even human. And what they're doing is they specifically fed the, di the mice a diet to induce obesity. And it's usually some horrible composition of, like, corn oil and soybean oil and refined protein and dextrose and maltodextrin and nothing that's actually food. But it's, like, just this composition, this compilation of nutrients that um, – it's designed specifically to make the mice obese and sick. It's not just a high-fat diet. It's a diet designed because we know this will make their species suffer. And then the, the researchers perhaps wanted to study the effects of obesity on diabetes or something like that. Or whatever you find, it's generally a very far cry from what you heard um, you know, published on that headline. So I recommend people doing that before they get all worried and freaked out about a new study that came out. You know, go back and actually read the study itself and uh, just one thing to always always keep in mind is um, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, which is the difference between observational studies and experiments. And observational studies are just when researchers take a bunch of data um, or a bunch of – it's observational. So all you're doing is you're looking at people, you're looking at what they're doing, you're looking at how they get sick, rather than asking them to you know, re reduce your fat content of your diet and let's see what happens in 10 years. Um, that would be more along the lines of an experiment. But most of our studies out there right now, especially the ones that receive a lot of media coverage, are observational. And so whenever you see an observational study, just remember it has no power to determine cause and effect. And so it's almost, I won't say it's a garbage bin study, but it's not the kind of study that you as a consumer, as an eater, as a health conscious person should be um, changing your diet based on. So just that's a biggie that I'd put out there. Mm. Awesome. Thank you for dropping that yeah. knowledge. It's really it's good stuff. I mean, I think if, if most people knew that information, there would be a lot less confusion about nutrition because people wouldn't get so right. hyped up and excited over something they see on the news and then spread right. it like wildfire all across Facebook and Twitter and, you know, this causes this. and Exactly. Uh, and it's why people yeah. get so confused, too, because you see a headline that one day, again, it'll say, like, high-fat diet causes type 2 diabetes, and then next day you'll see a headline like, high-fat diet shown to encourage weight loss more than low-fat diet or something, and then you're left with this, this confusion about, like, well, okay, what's really, what should I be eating? Because everything's bad for you, but everything's also good for you, and it just makes no sense. 
And that's why one I of the studies are just worked out of control. Yeah, and like you know, like like even like the documentary Forks Over Nice, like I felt like that created right. you know documentaries especially I think as much or more than um, you know than than like watching the news. It just creates so much. Right. You know, maybe not totally accurate information. So you you wrote a post about forks over knives, right? Yes, it was very very long. <laughs> long post. What what were some that of the things that too. you know you could share with us about that post? That you know, someone who would get really really excited about forks over knives and they want to go and become a vegan and you know eat only vegetables. Right. Like, what would you say to them? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I kind of sympathize with that because I really liked that movie and I thought it was very very wonderful seeing people who are on their deathbeds turn their health around and basically have a renewed lease on life. So for people who see that movie and get really worked up over it and really excited and inspired, I, I totally get that. So I'm not not a saying that's a bad thing necessarily. But the biggest issues with that whole, um, like the whole uh, documentary and the way that it took different snippets of evidence, quote-unquote, from different sources was that, first of all, the people who are being put on these plant-based, low-fat diets they were coming from diets that were completely atrocious. Like, there's a shot of one woman talking about how she used to eat donuts and chocolate and cakes all the time, and now she's on this vegan diet, and yay, it's a vegan diet that cured her. But it's not just because she eliminated meat and fat, it's because she was eating a very, very nutritionally poor diet prior to that. So on one hand, I think that the protocol that was used in terms of diet by Caldwell Espen, the, you know, the surgeon doctor who was a kind of the star of this film, um, his diet, again, it goes back to like this whole, if you move in any direction away from the standard American diet, it's going to be doing you favors because you cannot get worse. Like The standard American diet is like the epicenter of everything that could go wrong with food. So it's, as, soon, as soon as you start moving away from that, then things are going to happen. So I believe that the um, the benefits of this diet on reversing heart disease were misattributed, and especially in terms of um, you know, this idea that, well, these people went on a low-fat vegan diet, their health improved, therefore meat must be bad for you. I don't think there's any way to make that, draw that conclusion from what we saw. Um, but what really irked me in the study was there was this comparison of um, heart disease mortality trends uh, just kind of skimming across from the early 1900s, then seeing that the rates go up dramatically up until about World War II. And then during World War II, we saw those rates drop off like in a very extreme way. And then this graph was being held up, and then we were uh, being shown another another chart where uh, the, um, uh, I think it was fat, no, it was animal protein or animal food consumption. We're showing, being shown a graph showing that same thing, and we saw that as soon as animal food consumption went down, heart disease mortality went down as well. And um, so we were supposed to take away from this comparison um, of the the idea that, okay, so during World War II, food was rationed, and especially animal products were rationed. Um, you know, butter, um, meat was a lot harder to acquire. Um, so how take dropped, meat consumption dropped, and look, wow, heart disease dropped as well. So it must have been this reduction in animal foods that caused this uh, improvement of health, especially heart cardiovascular health during World War II. And so I think a lot of people probably saw this um, this part of the movie and were very struck by it because it seems very conclusive. It seems to be logical. It seems to make sense. So when I was writing my critique of it, I went back and I, I found a bunch of data from wartime Europe where I was looking at what actually happened when rationing was put in place. And in many cases, yes, animal food consumption went down in terms of uh, like butter consumption and milk consumption. But at the same time, fish consumption rose dramatically 
cod liver oil um, consumption increased as well. People started growing their own gardens and eating a lot of um, just completely fresh, locally grown, sometimes foraged wild vegetables, which are very high in micronutrients, much higher than we see in the grocery stores. And uh, just there are many dietary changes that happen beyond just this um, reduction of meat intake that I think have legitimate, we have legitimate reason to believe that these things could have been increasing people's heart disease rates. And at the same time, we don't know if people were getting less heart disease because they were dying more of, you know, combat issues, you know, dying in right. war, if they died more because they're getting infectious disease because their quality of living went down. Um, there are many other things that could have been in play at the time. And the movie just does not address those things at all. It just leaves you with this impression that meat consumption dropped, heart disease rates dropped, therefore two and two are linked. And that just goes back to the whole correlation is a causation thing. You know, just because two things are happening at the same time doesn't mean that one is causing the other. There could be many other um, factors at play. So that part of the movie really upset me, and I, I tried to go into detail about um, how it was uh, misleading. So there was that. And then the China study, you know, classic study showing supposedly that animal protein causes everything that goes wrong with the human body. Um, that was brought up as evidence. And, and, of course, when I saw that, you know, I've written a lot on the China study on my blog, and I was just like, no, yeah, we're not going there. So I tried to do a little critique on that as well. And um, overall, you know, the movie, again, it's very inspirational, and I can see why it would call a lot of people to action to change their diets. Because right. as soon as you have these emotional components where people are telling their stories, it just puts that personal spin on it. And, uh, you know, the human brain is hardwired to trust like those anecdotal stories much more than we trust statistics or hard math. It's just a, you know, it's a psychology thing. So I can see how that movie would really influence a lot of people. I just feel like it was very misleading in terms of how it presented its evidence. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's a lot. It's been an hour and it feels, yeah. you know, <laughs> feels <laughs> to me it feels quick. I'm sure for you you're like, geez, this is like going to be no, a long road. No, it's been an hour already. No, love, an hour, can you believe it? Wow. <laughs> Isn't it amazing Crazy. how fast it flies? It's insane. Oh, I yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could keep talking to you all night, but do you have any um, any parting words, anything else that you, uh, you know, wanted to – to, to talk about, I mean, I think we talked about a lot, but I want you to get your your satisfaction out of it as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I think that covers it. I mean, I I would just like to leave everyone out there with the just the the thought that okay, so here we are, all looking for improved health, we're looking for a diet that works well for us, and I'd really just like to drive home the point that any form of dietary dogma in the end, becomes um, uh, harmful to our health. And I, I would say I say that as having observed it hardcore in the paleo community, hardcore in the vegan community. There's always a group of true believers, of people who are certain that their message is the only correct one. And in the process of writing this book and just doing my own research in general, I've really moved away from the, the idea that there's one ideal diet for everyone. So just, uh, just everyone out there be encouraged to find your own path and to respect your body, honor your body, honor your differences, um, and uh, not fall into that trap of uh, groupthink that I think a lot of us have fallen into in the past. Yeah, I love that. And even if you find that you, like, even if you feel like you found the perfect diet, still keep your mind open mm -hmm. because it might right. not so always be the perfect diet yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Cool. Well, where can people learn more about you, kind of follow what you're doing, give them, give them your info? Yeah, sure. So my blog's website address is rawfoodsos.com. And if you forget that, you can just go to denisemingercom and it redirects to my Raw Food SOS blog. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Denise Minger. Um, on Facebook, feel free to friend me. My my personal page is pretty much my professional page, so it's just uh, you know <laughs> Facebook.com slash Denise Minger. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And um, my book is available on Amazon. It's called Death by Food Pyramid. You can also buy it directly from the publisher at PrimalBlueprintPublishing.com. Great. Will you be at uh, Paleo FX and AHS this year? I'm hoping so. I'm still kind of working out how much I'm going to owe in taxes. <laughs> it kind of depends on how broke I am in the next month or two. So I'd love, okay, I'm hoping good. I well, can attend those. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope to see you at, in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, have a wonderful night. And um, and I really, I mean, if you want me to run the APOE, I'd be happy to. Just send me a message. So just yeah, let me know. Cool. I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Awesome. You're so welcome. <laughs> have a great night. Thanks, Denise. You as well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to, uh, to another episode. I love that one. Um, I think it's, uh, this is a topic that's really important. I think we can all kind of relate to. Um, so thanks, you guys, for the continued support for the show. Please share the show if it's uh, something you think that a friend or family member would really benefit from. Um, I, as you guys know, I work with patients locally here in San Diego and all over the country. So, you know, if you feel like you're not getting answers, you're not feeling well, you feel like you're not speaking the same language as your doctor, I'd be happy to, to work with you. Um, my website's drlaurennoel.com. Um, also, shinenaturalmedicine.com if you want just some general information about the practice. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a great week, and I will catch you next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to Boys and Girls Clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to Boys and Girls Clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.